Welcome to EDI on BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at Business in Vancouver. Today, we're going to discuss equity, diversity, and inclusion in Canadian capital markets and finance sector. I'm joined today by a guest who says that focusing on women-centric diversity programs in the workplace may not be the best way to approach addressing inclusion. My co-host on the show today, Renu Bakshi, the founder of Renu Bakshi Communications, familiar no doubt to listeners, not just for her work as a publicist, but as an award-winning TV journalist who spent two decades in journalism. She's also a guest columnist on occasion for BIV. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. Thank and our you. guest today is Katie Squires Thompson, Chief Strategy Officer, Women in Capital Markets based here in BC and the co-author of a report called The Equity Equation. Katie, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Haley. And now I, I want to ask you about what I started the show off with, and that's the idea that women-centric approaches to diversity may actually be ineffective or perhaps regressive, according to this report that you've put out. First, I'm hoping you can address what is a women-centric approach, and second, why would you argue that it may not be effective? Yes, yeah, so a women-centric approach, this is really the traditional way in the last decade that firms and corporates have tackled uh, gender diversity and gender equity. And that's really training women. It's a focus on talent and making sure that women, you know, have the skills and the professional development and that they're adopting leadership qualities that are typically very um, male, historically male traits so that they can then excel in the workplace. So that's what a traditional, what we mean by traditional women-centered programs. And, you know, I think that really kind of came to be with was reinforced by the whole lean in era of thinking, um, which is, you know, telling women that if they advocate enough and they raise their hand and they negotiate unapologetically for a raise, they're gonna make it in the workplace. And that is very problematic because it fails to call out any of the systemic barriers um, that are very, very prevalent that we know now exist that hold women back. How diverse and inclusive is Canada's financial sector and how does BC compare to the national average? So Canada's capital markets, and we work with all of the major banks and pensions and Canada's sort of leading uh, financial institutions. It is a very typically traditionally male, white dominated industry. Um, so it's not, you know, I think that's unfortunately quite normal in a lot of industries still today. Um, and I would say obviously, I think it's reflected pretty equally across the country in Vancouver, for example, it's, you know, that industry probably has a little bit less racial diversity than Toronto. Um, but all in all this, these sort of industries have been built by men, typically white people. And now we're trying to open up cultural norms so that more types of people can advance and succeed with the same ease. Mm. You mentioned that there exist structural systemic barriers to greater inclusion and diversity in the sector. What are some of the most prominent ones faced by women? The barriers are really well known, really well researched and documented, and they are multifold. But they're anything from, you know, um, injustice in pay equity, um, microaggressions that are experienced on a regular basis, 
barriers in hiring, in the advancement process, even opportunities. Like some people have certain opportunities that they are able to go after work for, for drinks to socialize with their colleagues. Other people who are parents might not have that, you know, that liberty. So thinking about how all of the opportunities are offered and are they offered in a way that is fair and equitable and accessible to everyone, that's how we're gonna really create a culture that everybody can contribute to. So can we be a little bit more specific then? In your view, what's the right approach to facilitating greater inclusion? And is, are there examples of it in practice right now? Yes, so the equity equation report that WCM released to uh, last year, and we've been presenting this report to all of our sponsor firms at leadership at all of the banks, and uh, it, in, it provides a robust roadmap to equity. So it is a shift away from these traditional approaches of fixing the women um, and teaching them male dominated, male, historically male qualities to get them to fit into the system, shifting away from that and focusing on the system. So how can we adjust our policies, our practices, our culture to make it inclusive and to foster diversity? So there's a whole roadmap to build equity, diversity, inclusion in your workplace in the report. Sorry, did you want to say something? No, you go ahead, sorry. Okay, um, and the first one is really around centering equity, building all of your efforts off of equity, increasing equity literacy of all of your employees. So one of the findings that we found in the equity equation was men, the, the, the respondents who, who identified as male, um, did not report experiencing or perceiving significant levels of bias and harassment in their workplace. They thought their workplaces were relatively free from those things. Meanwhile, women and um, respondents who identified as 2SLGBTQ plus responded significant levels of it. So what that tells us is clearly there's an awareness gap, right? Bias and harassment are happening. Certain people aren't seeing it. Typically those who are in power and who are culture carriers aren't seeing it. So getting that equity literacy up so that people can understand what a microaggression is, what bias is, call it out when you see it, start to shift that, that culture is really important. Uh, I have a bit of a controversial question. It sounds like you're, it sounds a little bit to me like affirmative action. Is this sort of what we're talking about? Just not calling it that? I don't think it's affirmative action. I think it's dispelling the concept that we're operating in a meritocracy and making sure that we're, we're driving change that builds a true meritocracy. So it's looking at all of your systems, making sure that they're fair and equitable. And yes, like affirmative action, for example, one of the recommendations in the report is implementing targets and quotas for a set period of time. And this is because the reason why we're, we're uh, recommending that, it's not that we believe targets are the end-all be-all answer, but I do think that they're an important piece of getting the levels of diversity up enough that then culture can start to shift and the power doesn't lie with one specific group of people. But targets are only going to be effective if you can also simultaneously build a culture that is that is inclusive and fosters diversity and celebrates difference and all of that. Otherwise, you're just going to be constantly stalking the pond, but you're going to have a leaky pipeline because what you're putting in is not going to want to stick around. I think we often hear, Katie, people say, well, you either have targets and affirmative action or you have a true meritocracy. Do you think it's possible to have both or are you looking at sort of having targets in place as a means to getting to that place where a true meritocracy exists? Exactly. Targets are a means to an end. And the end goal is building a stronger meritocracy. 
unfortunately, that's going to be a really slow process until we can really create significant mass, critical mass to, to start to shift the scale. Mm. I, I'm curious in your conversation, speaking to some of the largest financial institutions in Canada and sharing this report, what feedback have you received? This report has been incredibly well received. We've presented it across the industry. Um, and I think, you know, one of the outcomes of the Black Lives Matter movement was that very strong call for systemic change. So firms, leaders, corporates are very much awakened to, you know, to that kind of action and are ready to kind of take that step. But the, the issue is how do we move away? I think there is still a little bit of a hangover from the lean in movement of, you know, well, we still need to develop women and help women. But no, that's not what we need to do anymore. Let's fix, focus on the system and let's also focus on those in power. They're the ones that ultimately need to open the gates and change. So it's almost like the training needs to shift from one group to the other. In your surveys, did you find women of color also feeling they were treated less than white women? That certainly felt like my experience in my previous career, uh, being a woman uh, that's not white, obviously. <laughs> um, did you hear from women of color saying that they're also fighting a double whammy? It's not just men, it's also white women. We did. We broke down the women respondents by race and in line with all of the other research that's been coming out recently, black women respondents did report the lowest levels of inclusion across all areas of work. So it was very much in line and a very disappointing stat. The other, other disappointing stat was I think the industry um, and maybe our, you know, beyond our industry has seemed to have done a lot of, made a lot of effort for 2S LGBTQ plus inclusion. Um, however, our study found that still 62% of respondents in that group said that they do not talk about their personal life at work for fear of having negative repercussions of that. And so that's a really disappointing stat when you think of all the effort that ha has gone into normalizing, you know, from adding pronouns to your signature to celebrating pride and all of that kind of thing. And there's still definitely high, too high levels of exclusion and harassment there. Um, and that really needs to change. And I think that comes from the, the dominant group taking actions to normalize, you know, differences. I want to speak just again a little bit to my experience, if that's okay. Absolutely. So in my previous career, I always felt that there was an agenda to have some quotas. Because I recall there being a government, a federal government survey that we were to fill out. So the company could tell the government how many colored people work there. And I refused to fill mine out. It was voluntary and I refused to fill mine out because I said, unless I'm at par with pay equity, like with my white women counterparts, I don't feel comfortable letting you get some sort of a point from the federal government or funding or whatever it is you're after, if you're not actually uh, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk. The other part of it was I never wanted to I just didn't believe in the quotas for the reasons you mentioned. These women-centric approaches are, uh, you know, seen as weak women needing help and that sort of thing. And I never wanted to uh, have that approach. So, in your survey with uh, respondents, did anybody oppose quotas or have any concerns about them? Yeah, I think in this specific survey, we actually did another survey just after this one that did measure how ready capital markets is for quotas, because uh, that was around the time where the OSC was 
soliciting feedback on, you know, are we ready to start regulating this and mandating quotas? And what we found was 92% of our respondents said they were in favor of quotas. And I think that is just, you know, we look at the last decade, all of the efforts that firms have made, there's been significant time, energy, money put into cultivating greater diversity, but not much has changed. We're still very much like a long way to go. And I think we're realizing it's time for a different approach and quotas could be the answer. And we've seen that, you know, work really well um, in different, in other countries. Um, and I think it's important, but the big thing around quotas is getting that level of education up. So people, you know, there's complexities around with tokenism and all these other elements of how quotas potentially undermine a meritocracy. But if we can get that education up to, so that everybody understands why quotas are necessary and how quotas don't undermine an, a meritocracy, but actually give equal opportunity to someone that hasn't traditionally had equal opportunity, then we can start to embrace that and not see that as like, you're only here because you are a black woman. And I think that's really important. Yeah, it seems to me, Katie, that the wrong approach would be implementing a quota and then not talking about it internally, not telling anybody why you're doing it. You mentioned literacy around these issues, which is critical, but what kind of cultural shifts need to happen so that you can implement a system like this without alienating other people or having people discussing behind others' backs about, you know, so-and-so is here because of a quota and not because of merit, which might not even be true. Absolutely. I think that ties into our sixth recommendation in the report, which we're telling all of the firms, be as transparent as you can, you know, especially coming through Black Lives Matter. People want transparency. They want to know what firms are doing. They want to know what the representative data is. They want to know what's going on. And, you know, with the pay thing, for example, um, more than one third of, of women in the report believe that they are paid, but half believe that they are not equally paid. Whether or not that is true, I mean, Canada obviously has a pay equity legislation and often in, in you know, big corporates like this, there are pay bans. So who knows whether or not that's true, whether the women are paid equally, it's very possible that they're not. But even if they were, there is clearly significant work to be done by firms to prove that they are paid equally. And I think that's where the gap is. There's a lot of really good intentions at the top, but that's not trickling down to the managers and the lower ranks of the firms. So to your point around what can be done for culturally to, to drive change, it really does come from leaders being very clear and articulate about what, you know, what the tone is. Um, setting accountability, like for example, tying executive or manager compensation to certain diversity inclusion metrics and having that accountability aspect. But then I also think that, you know, it's best when change is voluntary and education can drive that. If people really understand their privilege, understand, you know, that how things are not equitable in certain situations, then they can start to awaken to, you know, start to do the right thing. Because a lot of times everyone wants to do the right thing, but they just don't know. Um, and so I think that's an, an important piece that we need is just more education on, on all of these topics. And it's been so great to see the conversation really come to life in the last year. I think it's going to be generational because if you look at the younger generation, they are all about equality and social justice. And, and then the older generation, there's a divide on that often. And I think it'll be generational. And uh, I don't think in my lifetime I'm going to see it, everything be equal. I mean, I'm in my 50s, so I, 
when I say lifetime, I mean, I've only got a couple of years left. Oh, come on. <laughs> Hopefully more than that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I think it's generational. I, I want, I have one question because I'm still not understanding the difference between the woman-centric approach being um, harmful in a way, as we've talked about, you know, oh, women need extra help and they need this, and it, it can be detrimental and harmful. But isn't the quota, a same, isn't it the same thing? And Katie, I, I respect and I understand, and I'm totally behind the fact that education is key. People need to have a shift up here. Leaders need to have a shift up here to start seeing people as equal Qual, uh, qual, equally qualified um, employees who are going for a job versus, you know, color versus gender and that stuff. But the shift has to happen up here. So are quotas not harmful? I think they are. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I think the difference is when we're talking about women-centered support, that's, for example, leadership training to say, okay, as a culture, we value, um, you know, we tell women that they apologize too much. So you need to learn to stop apologizing. Meanwhile, maybe it's maybe men should learn to apologize more. Like who is it? Who are we to say that this is the way you should be? But that's the, that's the way that we've been trying to develop women and these you know minority groups to fit into the normative culture. So that's the problematic area because ultimately it puts the onus on those people to fit in when they're already, you know, working the double shift, carrying the emotional tax of navigating harassment and microaggressions and all of these things. Plus you're saying, hey, and also, by the way, we know it's hard enough for you as it is, but you also need to lean in like that is and, and be someone you're not like that is not the right approach. Targets and quotas are a support, but it's it's you're, you're putting it in place with the acknowledgement that this is because the system is not working properly. So it's to compensate for a broken system, not a broken person. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense for sure. I know uh, the point about apologizing less certainly resonates. I mean, there's a long list of what women are told. Don't use the word just in an email, be more assertive, dress a certain way, and on and on and on and on. We can have a whole discussion just on that. But if we're talking about systemic change and we're looking at maybe generational change, it's going to take years, if not decades. Should women still be trying to, and I don't want to say fit in because that feels like the wrong word, but should they still be employing all of the tools in their tool belt to try and succeed in the workplace as it takes time for some of these underlying cultures and trends to shift? Or should, is that part of the problem as well? Should women know, just, you know, be true to themselves and charge forward and not necessarily try to conform? I mean, it depends, I think, where your values are. I'm more inclined to be true to yourself and model the qualities that you believe in. But I think that ultimately what needs to happen is we need to create systems that don't favor one type of person over another, one quality over another. You know, this is where we tell firms, review all of your hiring criteria. When you post a job, think about the language in that job posting. Is it speaking to men or women or is it gender neutral? You know, all of these nuances that you can, you can implement systemically and take the onus off the people. I wanna ask you too, Katie, about the difference between implicit and explicit biases, because we know the implicit piece is there. And I think we've been talking a lot about that. If we're looking at the language in a job posting, that is a great example. But from some of the remarks you said a bit earlier, it sounded as though explicit biases are alive and well for, you know, when it comes to race, when it comes to LGBTQ plus community, when it comes to gender in the workplace, are you hearing that to be the case from women in capital markets? 
I can't speak. I've never worked in capital markets personally, and I can't speak. I mean, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure there is explicit bias happening. I think that's undeniable, no matter what industry you're working in, because our culture has such a strong, you know, norm that is still that we're trying to still unravel a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, as an individual, the more educated you can be, the more you'll be able to be an, a better ally. And that's really what we need right now. It's, you know, transferring the onus from the, the underrepresented groups to the dominant group to allow change to happen. Great. Um, this equity equation report has a long list of recommendations. I'm hoping you can and would be useful too, to companies outside of financial and capital markets to be sure if somebody wanted to start somewhere and is not necessarily in a position to try and implement everything on day one, where would you suggest they start? What is a good initial step to get the ball rolling and try and facilitate some change or even examine some of the areas that might need to be changed within a workplace? Yeah, I would highly suggest you go to our website, wcm.ca, download the report, have a read. And it even can be as small as talking about it with a colleague or sharing it with your manager. Hey, have you seen this? Like, what do you think? You know, this is a really surprising stat to me. Wonder why that is. Might be a good discussion for us to have. We need to start opening up these discussions more in the workplace. And we're seeing that happen, which is hopeful. Um, but I think that's a really good, a really good place to start. And for those in, in, you know, the dominant group, if you are a man or if you are a white person, what can you do to be an ally? One thing that we're, we're going to be doing as a follow-up study is a, is a study on parental leave and, you know, who's taking it and who has access to what kind of policy and how can we get um, more men to take parental to, to, to take paternity leave and be equally present in their children's lives. One thing that we've seen through COVID is how much of the domestic and caregiving work is is done by women. And I think that the problem there is like workplaces are all offering flexible, you know, flexible work options. You can take maternity leave. There's all these accommodations for women, which are awesome because it allows women to balance their work and, and home life. But unless men take those accommodations as well, we're not going to get to gender equality or equity. Everything needs to be um, more equally distributed and then we'll get there. Well said. I just have to say you're, you're managing a lot of big topics in your life. So more power to you. It's like carrying the world on your shoulders. So we need people like you uh, doing studies like this. Good for you. Thank you, Renu. I appreciate that. It's hard work, but it's fulfilling. And I think um, these conversations are so important. So thank you for, for creating space to talk about this stuff. Of course, we're pleased you could join the show and point taken about literacy. I think that that's something we can all strive to make sure we're up to date and fully understanding these complex issues. So Katie, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on our program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Rainu, thank you for joining me first time as co-host. Great to have you on our show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Haley. Appreciate it. Katie, thanks a lot. We were speaking today with Katie Squires-Thompson, Chief Strategy Officer of Women in Capital Markets. She's based here in BC, and she's the co-author of The Equity Equation. You can find that report on their website. I recommend checking it out, and they have a list of recommendations if you're curious about some of the things we've been speaking about today. My co-host today, Renu Bakshi, founder of Renu Bakshi Communications and a guest columnist at BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at Business in Vancouver. Thanks so much for joining us on our EDI on BIV podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of our show next Tuesday.